How many of you, just nod your head, how many of you like the game of Monopoly? No? Two, three? Back down to two? Not a fun game? Listen, I love Monopoly, and that's because I never lose. All right? Don't hate me. Don't hate me now, but I never lose. Maybe like once every decade. And that's just because I was tired or didn't care. But I usually win. And I have these unorthodox methods that have always helped me win the game of Monopoly. Right? Um, some would call it cheating, but I've seen the rules. I've been through the rule book. I'm not breaking any rules. All right? So one of these methods I'm going to share with you, because that's why you drove through the snow today. You want a pointer on how to win Monopoly? Uh, I'm not going to tell you all of them, because I might play you someday. But one of them is, is you always oppress the poor. I mean, drop the hammer. Even if you've been shown mercy that game, don't show any mercy. Don't. They don't deserve it. It's just a game. All right? So this is how it works. I always wait till they land on one of my properties. The reds are the best. Reds and greens. That's the money makers. So they'll land on one of those. And it'll always be that time where it's usually the poor person. Right? It's usually whenever they land and it's like a rent of 125 or 150, like one house or something. And then they start, they start getting their cash, but it's such a pathetic sight because they're digging into their tens and their fives to muscle up the cash and they're about to hand you everything. Just right at that last moment, stop them and say, no, listen, listen, don't do that. I mean, you could come back and I want to play. I mean, don't you want to play? I mean, listen, don't worry about that. How about this? How about you keep that money and every time you land on those reds or whatever the property color might be, greens, whatever. Every time you land on that for the rest of the game, you don't have to pay any rent either. Not now, not ever. Really? Yeah. All I want is that little piece of property right there that you have, right? The one that's going to complete the next Monopoly. That's all I want. And then you have free rents on that, just considering blank spots, right? That's how you do it. They're going to lose anyway, okay? They're gonna, <laughs> if they found themselves in that position, it's just they're scuttling the boat. So what you do is you get a piece of property before it goes back on the open real estate. You get it for free, right? So it works. So that's how I dominate. So the poor come, no mercy. So what you end up with at the end of the game is two classes of people towards the end of the game. You end up with the haves and the have-nots. You end up with the poor people that you're already counting their money. You're already looking at the real estate. You're already planning on it. You just kind of tolerate them, right? And then you have the heavy hitters. You have the people that you have to take a little serious, right? Because they have as much property as you do. They have as much, uh, I don't know, money as you do. You have the people that are below you, and you have the people that are above you, right? Now, James is dealing a little bit with this same situation in this passage we're looking at today, all right? It's not as bad um, in Monopoly. It's a little bit more serious here. And James is a little bit more ticked here. You can hear it in his voice. He's taking some shots because of the report he's getting back from the church. And so that's what we're going to look into. Look at James 1, verse 27. And if you don't have a Bible, it'll be up on the screen. Um, and we also have some free Bibles over there you can grab on the way out. Um, James 1, 27, it starts off like this. And we will go into chapter 2. I know they're separate. Blow that off. They shouldn't be. Those should actually be together. It says this, Religion that is pure... And undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Okay, so you hear us say, pause, you hear us say all the time, 
that the gospel can be found in all aspects of the word, the Old Testament, the New Testament. It could be the, the gospel. The ro- there's a road to the cross in the prophecies and Revelation and the Psalms and Ecclesiastes and Jonah. and every part of the Bible, there is a road, there is a trail, there is a highway that goes straight to the cross. Here's one of those spots right here. Just that first verse. I mean, raise your hand if, if, you, if you can see the gospel in that first verse. Where do you, some of you see the gospel? Go ahead and call, call it out. Okay, visiting the afflicted. That's good. Anyone else? Why would that be the case? Because Jesus came to us as the afflicted. Go ahead and advance to the next slide. As you read the Bible, start, start looking through it with a gospel lens. This would be the gospel. We are the orphans and the widows who can't do anything for Christ. We don't bring anything to the table. Orphans don't bring anything to the table. They're the have-nots. So are the widows. And that's who we are. Yet, widows and orphans, they need a father. They need a covering. And that's who Christ was to us. Right? So look at the words that pop out of the verse, and it will help you see the gospel a little bit sometimes. So let's go on. Verse 2. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly... And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Okay, there's another gospel application here too. Does anyone see the gospel in this? This is just practice. These are for free. But does anyone see the gospel in this? Yell it out. Huh? Poor men? Okay, that could be one. That's not the one I found, but that's a good one. You could make that argument easily. Someone else? Anybody? Don't be scared. You're probably right. I'm going to say you're right even if you're not. How about that? How about this? Go ahead and advance to the next one. We have a better judge that judged us with pure thoughts, not with evil ones. And he didn't judge us by our externals. We have a better judge, right? So you see these little, these little opportunities, these little gospel opportunities peppered throughout this passage. But what is going on here? I mean, why is James having to write this? That's what you should think whenever you read passages. What provoked this letter? The church was judging people by their social status, and James found out about it. They're judging people. They're becoming warped judges with warped motives that didn't look like their ultimate judge. And he throws a flag on that. That's not a gospel image. It's actually the opposite. They're being anti-gospel with the way they're handling people with differing social statuses as they come in the door, right? This is what William Barclay says about this passage. It's very helpful. In the early days, the church was predominantly poor and humble. That we know, right? And therefore, if a rich man was converted and came to the Christian fellowship, there must have been a very real temptation to make a fuss over him and to treat him as some special trophy for Christ. And that's what we see. They're collecting these special trophies for Christ by giving seats of honors to some and not to others. Right? I don't know why they would do it. Maybe it's something they did, something they can do, something they have, something that they might do for you in the future. I don't know what would make that distinguishing mark or what that would be on that person, but that's how they would do it. They had their own version of Peyton Manning's walking in. It's Peyton Manning. He's at church. Well, he gets what? A seat of honor. People treat him differently. 
you know? I mean, most of you have heard the rumor, John Piper has moved to Knoxville, Tennessee for the next year, right? Probably one of the greatest Christian thinkers of modern, of modern history. I could make that argument. What if he came here? How would we treat him? Is it wrong to honor him? No. But would we dishonor others in the process of honoring him, right? Now, there's everything wrong with that. So this is what they're dealing with. There, there's nothing wrong with honoring people, but there's everything wrong in dishonoring others. And so those with high social status were treated if they were more special to God than others. That's what we're running into. Social status was used as a little bit of a rudder to kind of distinguish between the haves and the have-nots, and the haves just are flat out more special to God. So James is saying, listen, a Christian should be the last person impressed with the sham of social status. Christians should be the last person. And I'll tell you, not much has changed. We still do this. We still see people according to what they can do for us. We'd never say this out loud, but we do do it, don't we? They're either going to help us or they're going to hurt us. They're either a plus or they're a minus. They're an asset and a commodity or they're a hindrance and a hurdle. It's, it's so weird to say that out loud, but we do. We have this, and we do it so fast, don't we? We don't even have to think about doing something like that. What can they do for us, right? I don't think we mean to do this. Not all the time, but think about it. Who in your life, specifically, your life? This is a, this is a word to the church. It's also a word to the people that make up the church. Where, who, let's just say it this way, who gets the seats of honor in your life? Who do you save those for? Who do you judge with evil motives? Who do you dishonor? Why do you do that? What's the payoff? There's always a payoff, right? There's always a payoff. There's always a reciprocation. Do you get more honor? Do you get more stability by honoring them? I mean, what is it that helps you make that call? I mean, we'd never admit this, but whenever we treat people that are lower than us as if they were lower than us, if we, when we do that, we dehumanize them, and therefore we're, we're abusing them. But if we treat people like they're above us, then we deify them, and we end up doing the very same thing. And I know it'd be easy for some of you, as it was for me as I looked into this passage, but Luke, I don't do this. I love poor people, and I love rich people. I don't see people that way. But we have multiple contexts for this, don't we? I mean, we can conjure up many ways in order to dishonor people and judge with warped motives. We, we don't need money. What about education? If you're talking to two people, and one of them was a triple Ph.D., and the other one was just struggling to get their GED, what would that do to you? Would someone get the seat of honor, right? What about looks and style, age, appearance? Do some people get a seat of honor over others? What about their past? Are they white collar? Are they blue collar? We have all kinds of ways to categorize people and then at that time judge with warped motives who we reserve for the seats of honor in our life. It's easy for us to do this. And dishonoring people and being inconsistent with love is something that the world does. This is a worldly standard, right? But the church picks it up like a big lint brush, rolled back and forth, which the church always does. You know, pick up the things that the world is so good at. So when we consider, or when, let me just say it this way, when we are inconsistent with people, with our love and with our honor, whenever we do that, what we're doing is we're telling the world how to look at God. Because that's how we represent God. 
right? People will think about God based on how we act around others, how we carry ourselves as Christians. So if the church at large values fill-in-the-blank more than, let's say, education, if we show as a church at large, maybe not just legacy, but just the church in general, if we show that we value education more than anything, and that's the special speed, that, that's, that's the seat of honor, the special spot, what are we communicating to the world about God? Right? The, it's special in God's eyes to be highly educated. So people go out and do what? Get big educations. As if that got them more favor with God. That's what we would be teaching the world. So I have to ask myself this question, and this led a lot of my prayer this week. What does Knoxville think of God from how I interact with people? That's a hard question for me. What am I teaching the city? Do they see a God who loves the haves and the have-nots? And am I showing them that? Does Knoxville have a weird view of God because of my inconsistent love? Man. I mean, am I showing the blue-collar, the obese, the, the divorced, the damaged, the medicated? Am I showing them that God loves them, but he loves other people more? Right? Is it, could I be doing that? Because I know if I'm not careful and I'm not very gospel-saturated, and I'm going to explain what that means here in a minute. I know if I'm not those things, I could very easily say, hey, everyone come to the cross. Everybody come to church. Everybody come to the community. Everybody come to the gospel. Everybody is welcome. But some are special, and it might not be you. You might not be the special person. The thing is, is the gospel is the great equalizer, though. (laughs) We're all needy. We're all widows. We're all orphans. We're all the same. I mean, Paul said there are no more distinctions. Jesus came to just disrupt all things that would be considered a distinction. There's no more Greek, no more Jew, no more slave, no more owner, no more male and female. And what he means by that is we're not making distinctions um, over what is honored and dishonored. Right? This is what James says. This is James' answer to the problem. Look at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man, which he's saying you aren't even speaking and acting like the one who spoke and act towards you. He's saying you're doing the opposite. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but falls in one point has become accountable for it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So James is reminding them of something that they might have forgotten. He's saying, hey, if you break this one thing, partiality, it seems small. If you break that, you've broken the whole law. And friends, for you, that means death. That means death. This is what Ed Hebert says about this passage. It's very helpful for me. Maybe it will be helpful for you. Because that passage, it kind of, it, it, I didn't understand it for a long time growing up. He says, God's will is not fragmentary. It's not broken up into fragments or chunks. The entire law is the expression of God's unified will. To break one corner out of a window pane 
is to break the entire window. Right? He who crosses a forbidden boundary at one point or another is guilty of having crossed the entire boundary. That's what he's saying. So James is saying to them, James is saying to us today, hey guys, maybe some of you have forgotten what God has done for you. Maybe some of you have lost touch with the gospel that was so heavily proclaimed to you. You were all guilty of total treason. You were all guilty of total rebellion. But you have a better judge who has liberated you. And yet you act like wicked, warped, inconsistent judges with evil motives. That's how you're acting. You're elevating those who hate God. You're oppressing those who love God. It looks to me like things might just possibly be a little bit upside down. And it looks to me like maybe you have lost the gospel. Maybe you don't understand the picture of what God has radically done for you. That is what is happening right here. So he goes on verse 12 and he says this. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Boy, that's a very important verse. What is he saying? He's saying walk and talk as gospel people. Walk and talk as though you are saturated by the event, by the reality of what God has done for you. Walk and talk in a way that reflects a better judge, one without evil motives. I mean, is there anything scarier than a judge who has these deep financial needs and can be paid off? Think about that. Is that a judge you'd want to show up in front of? I mean, we're all going to watch the Super Bowl, or a lot of us today, right? What if you knew that three-fourths of the referee team could be paid off and might, in fact, have been paid off? Would that affect the game for you? There's nothing worse than a warped judge. That's why whenever they go in and they assess these referees, they look into their financials to see, are they really in trouble? Do they have any addictions? Do they gamble? They look at those things because... A judge with a warped motive can be purchased, and they can be what? Inconsistent. Inconsistent. Our judge, though, he doesn't need anything from us. Our judge cannot be increased. Think about the concept. He cannot be elevated. He cannot be added to. He's totally self-sufficient. There's nothing for him to gain in judging us inconsistently. He doesn't posture himself. He doesn't pander so that we bring something to the table to make him bigger than he already is. God doesn't need our help. This bugs some people. Listen to this. This is going to bug a lot of you, but hear me out before, <laughs> before you judge me too harshly. God doesn't even need your glory. You can't add glory to God. You hear it all the time as a common vernacular. Hey, give glory to God. And I'm not going to bang on people that say that. But we can't add glory to God. He's already all glorious and cannot be added to. We can reflect his glory, however, all day long. We can't add. He's totally self-sufficient. He's totally self-sustaining. And his love for you is not to get anything. Think about the purity of how he judges. He loves you just because he wants to. Just because he wants to. That, friends, is very consistent. That's, that's being a consistent judge, not an inconsistent one. So he's saying walk and talk in that reality. Also walk and talk in the reality that you're under a new law, a law of liberty. There's been two laws mentioned in this whole thing. One of them is the old law. He refers to it as the royal law, right? This is the old Jewish code that regulated them. And you know how that judges us, the old law? Failures, rebels, transgressors, rule breakers, treacherous people. 
and it rightfully judges us so. It rightfully judges us there. But Christ perfectly followed that, perfectly followed the old law, and so what happened? He pleased the Father, right? And because of this, the old law, it no longer regulates you. It no longer says, and it could justifiably say, it no longer regulates you and says death is your sentence. Our rightful judgment is no longer death. This is what it says in in Romans 10. I think it'll be up on the screen. It says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's what's being described right there. That's what's happening right there. He hands us righteousness and a new law, a law of liberty. What does that mean? Liberty, freedom. It means being broken free from whatever you were chained to, shackled to, cuffed to, linked to, bonded to, whether it's an addiction, a compulsion, whatever it might, even death. We're not chained to those things anymore. There's nothing put before you that God does not have utter control over. It's a law of liberty. So what's going on is James is saying something that is very provocative. And it might not have come across provocative when we first read it. He says, so speak and so act. So speak and act. James is telling us to do something. We touched on this last week in the Q&A a little bit. Right? He's telling us to do something. That's an action. There's effort. It's an imperative. But it's an action that we do, and it's effort that we show, not in order to apply for God's favor or a plea to get more of God's favor. It's an action and an effort we show because we've already received God's favor. We've already received the ultimate blessing that he could show us. It's a reflection of who we are. It's not an attempt to get something from him. I mean, I'll explain it. I'll I'll try to make it a little bit more clear. I love other people, not because they're lovely (laughs) and not because they're easy to love, because they're not, are they? People aren't easy to love. And I don't do it because it gets me anything, because a lot of times it doesn't. And I don't love people because it helps God love me more. I love other people because God loved me, and I'm not lovely. I'm a very unlovely person, right? And in the midst of my sin and sleaze and garbage and in my worst day, he entered my reality and traded with me. Therefore, I get to love people to the best of my ability and image Christ to the best of my ability. Treasure. That's another example. I give God my treasure, right? I give God a lot of my family's treasure. That's financial. That's material. We give it a lot. Why? Now, I grew up hearing that if you give a lot, you will get a lot. If you give a lot of treasure, if you give a lot of dollars, God will give you a lot of dollars. It doesn't always work that way. (laughs) It could, but it doesn't always work that way. And it should never be the reason that I would give anything. Because that that would be a manipulative way, like this big pry bar. All right, God, I'm going to throw you some money. But this is me pulling down on that pry bar to release more favor upon me. That's the formula, right, God? But I don't give treasure for that. The reason me and my family and my kids even give of our treasures is because God, he dove into his treasure and took the most valuable piece of his treasure, which is his own son, and gave him to us. Christ is God's treasure bequeathed to us, given to us. So it makes my giving more of a gospel-saturated giving. But it doesn't help God love me more. Right? You see the difference? Are you starting to see the distinction? Forgiveness. I forgive people not because it will make God like me more. God will be pleased with me more. I forgive because I've been forgiven. Because an ultimate forgiveness has visited me. Same thing with reconciliation. Reconciliation just means enemies made to be friends. That's what the word means, right? 
It doesn't mean forgiveness. It means a little bit more. So when I meet someone that's an enemy and I try to reconcile with them, it's not so that I make another friend and have less enemies, <laughs> right? It's not so that I can make God like me more. It's because I was God's enemy and he reconciled with me. He came to me and became a friend at his cost and at my benefit, right? You see, the gospel has already radically lifted us from ourselves. He's already radically rescued us from ourselves. He saved us from ourselves. And now we get to walk our lives as a response, a gospel-saturated response that shows the world who God really is. And, but I'll tell you, and this is where it might get a little controversial, text your questions in. When I live in a life, when I live a life where I fail in all of these points, I don't handle my time, talent, and treasure as a gospel-saturated person. When I don't love others, when I don't interact with others properly, when I don't honor others, or, or I do dishonor people, right? When I don't forgive, when I don't reconcile, when I don't do all of those things, I can say all day long that the gospel has arrested me and I am in the king's family, but the truth is, is I'm really not. I'm really not. I'm revealing the opposite, in fact. I mean, a mirror cannot reflect what's not staring straight into it. That's just the way it works. And some of you are hearing that, and your palms are sweating, and you're getting anxious, and you're thinking, Luke is saying that I might not be a Christian because I don't look like Jesus in my life. I might be saying that. I might be saying that, okay? And you can always come up and talk to me afterwards, and I totally get that. In fact, I hope you do. But I do want you to just bear with me for a minute. Look at Matthew 18, and we're going to put it up on the screen. This is straight from Jesus' teaching. This is what he says. This is a really incredible parable. He says, therefore, <laughs> I think it's all sideways almost, didn't I? I just looked up there. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Pause. Ten thousand, don't worry about what that translates to today, okay? The number is not as significant as the symbolism that it represents, all right? 10,000 was like, well, and like Monopoly, that would be like the 500. They're probably, I mean, numbers would go further, but that's the limit to what they used as a denomination for money. So talents were these big things. They were the $500 in Monopoly, and they had 10,000. So most commentators would say, just stick in that blank, zillion. Zillion, a bagazillion, whatever we would use today to be the, the uttermost of denomination. That's what this guy owed. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. So he just he forgave an impossible debt, an impossible debt, one that could never be repaid. That's what you have to get out of that. Verse 28, but when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Okay, hundred denarii. Again, that's one day's wage for your common laborer, all right? So think of like uh, an iPod or something like that. You owed him an iPod, right? About 150, 120 bucks, somewhere around there. And seizing him, he began to choke him and saying, pay me my iPod. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and he, put, and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. 
Now when the fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. How long do you think that would have taken? Forever. That's the idea. He couldn't have repaid it. It's a zillion dollars. This is forever. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Wow. Okay. Wow. So the punchline is here to a not-so-funny story is, are you exercising what has already been exercised towards you? That's the punchline, right? Are you acting and speaking towards others as Christ has acted and spoken towards you? And some of you, and I know some of you read this passage and you're wondering in your mind, did this guy lose his salvation? Because that's what it looks like. He was pardoned, and now he's thrown into jail forever. So, Luke, if I get this right, it looks like he lost his salvation. My answer to you would be is he never had it, never was saved. He never understood, accepted, internalized what it was that God had really done for him. He didn't fail and then lose his salvation. He failed because he never had it. He wasn't saved. So, let me ask you. I'm going to break this down to three different groups of people here, and then we're done. Okay? Christians. You're a Christian here today. What gospel are you preaching by who you love? Ask yourself that. How do your interactions with people teach the culture about Christ? That's just convicting. I mean, all week I've been thinking about the people I've been bumping into, the people that I want to talk to, and the people that I'm anxious to break away from that so I could talk to somebody else. Right? the people I kind of look over while they're talking to me to see somebody else, the seats of honor. It's hard. It's hard for me. For those of you, me being one of them, for those of you who struggle in being consistent with how you handle people, we, we need to square our shoulders with the reality of what Jesus has done. We need to do that. You see, you didn't choose Jesus in your brilliance. You didn't do that. You didn't select him in your power and your wisdom as you did all this careful research and chose the best option. That's not what happened. You didn't help Jesus out by being such a great person. He's not lucky to have you. He's not honored to be in your presence. Me neither. He chose and he rescued us and he poured mercy on us simply because he wanted to. Just because he loves you You brought nothing to the table. Nothing. I have to wrestle with that. I have to let that tackle me. I have to grapple with the fact that God's grace goes so deep that it surpasses and swallows up my worst sin. That I've not done anything that can surpass or outgrow God's mercy over my life. And he didn't do it because I I would eventually turn out to be some great guy and would eventually pay him back someday. He didn't do it because I was going to help him reach a city. He didn't do this so that I could be uh, just a, an, a very good father to my son who would grow up and be something much He did it just because he loves me. He did it just because he loves me. 
You've got to get your arms around all of that. And the thing is, is he had a great reason and a, a great cause to judge us rightly, to totally judge us and show us no mercy because we're undeserving. That's what he should have done. This is what it says in verse 13 as we go forward through this passage. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Okay, let me explain this a little bit. All right, see if I could help. God, and there's a couple places in the New Testament where God refers to us as vessels. I think in Romans 9-ish and 2 Timothy, okay? A couple places where he refers to us as vessels. Think cups, I don't know, pitcher, it catches something. Think buckets. All right, buckets are easy. I'm a dude. Buckets. All right? At the cross, Jesus was a vessel, a bucket, for all of the judgment that God would pour out. All of the wrath all of the justice, and it had to be perfect, all-encompassing, and perfectly measured because God can't show up at the cross with less judgment. God did not look at Jesus and say, I'll give you a pass because you're Jesus after all, so I'm going to have a little bit more mercy than justice, and the math will just work itself out. He didn't do that. He gave all. He exhausted himself with judgment and filled Jesus' bucket right there on the cross. That leaves us holding the bucket. Now, we have a bucket, right? And what is ours filled with? It's not filled with wrath anymore. It's not filled with judgment. It's not filled with punishment because that's already been poured in an exhaust in another's bucket. Our bucket is full of grace and mercy. And it doesn't even have one drop, one drop of judgment that we do deserve. It has, it's full of what we don't deserve. That's why it says mercy triumphs over judgment. Not because they were ever competing. Mercy and judgment do not compete at the cross. It's that one took judgment so that mercy would find us. So for you and for me, mercy triumphs over judgment. And I'll tell you, some of you, me too, some of you seriously, 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 seriously need to re-examine your reason for being the gospel. I mean, has grace found you? I mean, has mercy found you? Have you been rightly judged? I mean, do you exist in a new law? Is this true for you? Have you been adopted? Have you been grafted in? Have you been invited into a new residence that is the kingdom of God with a new king? Has that happened for you? Man, When you see the people around you that you tolerate, but you don't really honor, in fact, you dishonor, ask yourself, what part of this beautiful reality do I not really believe? At what point do I find myself back with James' listeners, dishonoring some and being judges with wicked motives? Where do I find myself being there? And let me ask you this question, and I'll throw this in at the last minute to this group of Christians. When you do speak and act, whenever you do do a good job of honoring everybody equally, whenever you do do a good job of honoring people for what God has done for them, not for what they could do for you, whenever you do do that, why are you doing it? Are you doing it because you want to appease a ticked-off God? Are you doing it because you're trying to climb the corporate ladder, so to speak? Are you doing it because you want him to like you more, love you more, be favorable towards you, bless you more, increase you more? Why are you doing it? Are you doing it because you're not sure that you're saved and you think if you just keep doing good things then maybe God will bring a surety and you'll be confident that you're saved? 
Are you doing it because you've done some horrible sin in the past and you're trying to overcompensate because there's just no way God's ever forgiven you for that thing, right? Why are you doing it? It matters. It matters. You need to tackle the gospel and you need to let grace tackle you. That would be my appeal to you. And then there's another group of Christians that I want to talk to. And these are the, those who might feel a little dishonored. Like you're in the cheap seats. And any have-nots in here? Right? You always feel like you come in and all the seats of honor have been taken. You feel judged wrongly with evil motives. Is that you? Let me tell you, Christ was persecuted somewhat, not entirely. The real reason he was persecuted is because he said he was God, right? And people like to sin. But besides that, somewhat, he, he, a lot of it was his social status. He did not come from the right family, understand? That didn't happen. There were rumors around him that his mom was immoral, that he had no dad. I mean, imagine growing up in that, right? He didn't go to Liberty. He doesn't have an educated pedigree. He didn't go to Southern, didn't go to RTS, didn't go to Southwest, didn't go to any of these great schools. He didn't have the pedigree. He, had, he was blue collar. He had calluses on his hands to match the hammer that he picked up every single day. Right? He didn't have wealth. All the things that the world values today, he didn't have any of them. But he came as a lowly servant to do this beautiful substitution with you. Not, he came in the face of distinctions of social status to destroy all the ones that already existed. That's why they don't exist today. The cross, it wrecks all of the distinctions we have today. So this is my caution. This is my challenge to you as a group of Christians. And it sounds hard, right? But this is me loving you. Stop looking at the fact that you are in the cheap seats. Stop obsessing about being a have-not. Does that sound horrible? I mean, understand who you are. You are an heir. You are a co-heir with Christ and an heir to a great kingdom. Start celebrating the fact of who your king is. There's really only one judgment that matters, right? It's not the judgment of some man judging whether you are a have or a have not. The judgment that matters is the one that Christ took for you. That's the primary judgment. I'm sorry if others have acted in an anti-gospel way towards you. I'm sorry if that's happened. Listen, I'm sorry if I've done that to you. I'm sorry if that's happened here. I'm sorry if it's happened in your last church. I'm really sorry. But my judgment of you, it, others' judgments of you, it, what you really need to focus on and wrestle with is the judgment that Christ took on himself so that he could give you righteousness. He became unrighteousness that you would become righteousness, right? You see how that works. And then there's a group of you that I would say are far from God. Maybe you're not sure. Maybe you're really far from God. Maybe a little bit far from God. Maybe in a fog, in the weeds. You did something as a kid. You were six at a camp. You're not sure, right? That was me for a long time. Let me tell you, you will be the vessel, the bucket, of one of two realities. That's what I want you to get out of this. Something will fill your bucket. And it will either be the grace and the mercy that came as a grace to you because you didn't deserve it, or it will be the judgment that comes to you because you did not fall under the righteousness of Christ. It will be one of those two things. It will also be another law that you'll 
you'll carry to the end. I guess I'll say it that way. There's a royal law that judges you as a sinner and ends with death, right? There's a new law that Christ brings that liberates you from death. One law will rule you in the end. One law will cast its judgment on you in the end. So listen, don't make the mistake of thinking, and this was me, and I know it's maybe some of you, don't make the mistake of thinking because you are graceful and you do honor people and you do love and you do forgive and you do some really cool things. Don't make the mistake of thinking that that grafts you into God's family because it does not. It does not. Your acts don't rescue you. Your rescuer rescues you, right? It's not works because you might do good things. I'm sure you do. You might do more good things than I do, than we do, but you've also broken every law, right? So what you need is not just someone who did a lot of good things, like Jesus. You need someone who did a lot of good things and lived the perfect life and never sinned. He did not break every law in the book like you and I do every day. That's who you need. Good performance and being nice, it brings you absolutely no grace. But Jesus Christ brings you grace. And so my submission to you, and this is the last thing I'll say. In fact, the team can go ahead and come up. My submission to you is very simple. For you to remove the cross from your own head and put it at the feet of a true king. Right? You've been ruler and you've held reign over your own kingdom since you were born. But there is a better king. And that is where you lay your treasures. You lay your crown. Stop being your own God. You're not the master of your own destiny, as much as it feels like it. And to stop, by the power of God only, stop doing everything your flesh tells you to do. Right? This is what it, this is what it means to repent, to turn away, and to turn towards. You can't turn away from something unless you're turning towards something else. Right? We turn from our sin, we turn towards a king. That would be my submission for you.